Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. Uh, John had um, thought of us having a group here to join in on some of the recollections people have about Roy. I'm I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic, by the way. Um, I've known Roy since, I knew Roy since about 1984. Um, We had a Roy here in Nashville who began essay in Nashville in about... Uh, the end of January of 1984. And he introduced it to the AA groups here in Nashville. And one day I was in the room when he was talking about it, and that's where I heard for the first time. Uh, In February of 84, about... Roy in California, and S.A. Apparently, the Roy here in Nashville had gone a few weeks before, or maybe it was January for the January meeting. He had gone to a meeting out in Arizona or somewhere, and there were just a handful of people where Roy was, dealing with S.A., and he learned about S.A. And he came back here to Nashville, all enthusiastic, excited, and told us about it. And then about six weeks later, I met with him, and we started, he had met with one other person, and we had started an S.A. group here. I came about six weeks after he started it here, and he would tell us about Roy, who he had met the month before. And this is in 1984. During those first few meetings, we would get these one page that had two sides of a page written on, typed, 8 by 11 page that had these little articles in them. And they were just loose paper. And 
I never knew what they were, where they came from, whatever. But apparently Roy, from his garage, was putting out this material of his thoughts on what was happening to him and his process. We would keep a loose-leaf book and started putting these papers in the loose-leaf book. And after a while, after a few weeks, a few months, it was getting big with these papers. In the meantime, Roy from Nashville said, Harvey, they're having a conference. This was in, I guess, June, no, July. You need to come. Well, I was just sober four or five months, I guess, at the time, and I wasn't well enough to go. I was too too frightened. You know, it took all I had to just stay sober one day at a time. And uh, the thought of going somewhere strange, sleeping somewhere strange, it just terrified me. And I never went. And that was the one, I think, in Phoenix. And it was just a... um, And so I missed the one they always talk about. (laughs) And at that meeting, where Roy was, um, I'm not sure if it was Phoenix, it was a a meeting. It went to their international meetings, which was just not international at the point. And it was there that Jess... And Sylvia got very involved. Now, let's backtrack. Roy had founded this fellowship. He had founded it in the late 70s based on his attending AA. And you know the story, but it's in the book. And he met with one guy, and it was very difficult for them to get going. But apparently they'd pick up a person or two and they had their meetings, little meetings. One day this guy called Jess L., Jess Lair, as he's deceased, who had been one of the founders of Emotions Anonymous, he was the one of those founders. By the way, as you know from previous talks I've given, I am such a liar that I'll make up stories and think they're true and say it as if they're true because I lie to myself thinking I know what I'm talking about. So be careful when you hear this story Hopefully, at least 10% of it will be true. But all kidding aside, this is the best I can remember it. So Jess had been a founder of 
Emotions Anonymous, and Jess had written these books, these self-help books that had sold tons of books. And he had this institute where he'd go all over the country lecturing. Uh, and his book was, uh, I Ain't Much Baby, But I'm All I Got. And a whole series of those books. And he discovered S.A. and Roy. And never the twain shall meet. It was constant <laughs> conflict about issues. <laughs> because looking back at it, they were both great authors and writers. And I would imagine the concept of writing and who write and this and that. But whatever. I wasn't there. I don't know, but I could still make the story up. But I won't. <laughs> but Jess started traveling. He discovered how essay worked for him and the wonders of what Roy has done. And like every good addict, we're going to either be black or white, and he, gray is difficult. So he became a missionary, evangelic like you wouldn't believe, for S.A. So whatever community he went to all over the country, he would start talking about Sexaholics Anonymous at his seminars, and you see the development of S.A. in many respects where he had talked. Meantime, Roy was doing a lot of this by mail and groups were beginning to come up. So much of the South and Southwest especially, Jess was planting. So the big group was L.A., where Roy was, in Simi Valley, in L.A. And by the way, I still speak to some of those people. I sponsor one, Terry, who is in, in that early group. And then there's Ted P., who um, is still living in the L.A. area. But, you know, he's an elderly man now, uh, still very vital. We talk every now and then. And these were some of those original people, but Phoenix was one of the big spots. And then Oklahoma City. And Sylvia caught it. <laughs> Got it. And she started attending those conferences and meeting Roy. From, that brings us to 1985. By then, I had a, over uh, a year of sobriety. I had started a celibate period and had never 
gone without sex for any length of time before, and I had my first wet dream. After months of celibacy, and we were off to Warm Beach to the first conference, I was well enough inside me that I said to my wife, hey, let's go to this conference. Well, wouldn't you know, I get a wet dream. Now, those little pieces of paper, by that time, got put in to an 8 by 11 little pamphlet with this gray sheet. Right, Dave? Brown, Brown sheet. See? See how it goes? <laughs> and we, in that book... It alluded to the fact that you could lose your sobriety with a wet dream. And so here I was, a man who had had hundreds and hundreds of sexual encounters, who is a compulsive masturbator, who is sexually abusive to his wife every day, having had no sex, doing well, feeling safe, many respects, and all of a sudden, I'm confronted with, am I sober? And I knew I was sober. I knew it. And so, I got up the courage to call Roy. And uh, that's how I met Roy. And uh, Roy never said to me, you're not sober because you've had a wet dream. Uh, Instead, he gave me this list of things I should do. (laughs) One after another. And did I do them? And did I keep getting wet dreams? With a 20-month celibate period. And, but it got me to call Roy. So I got to meet Roy. And that's how I met Roy. (laughs) When we, I finally got to Warm Beach, and Nancy and I knew nothing but motels and hotels, we get to one of these Christian retreat centers. And it was a rough retreat center. Not because it was Christian, but because it was a retreat center. (laughs) Tough, raw, you know, sleeping arrangements. And there they had cabins with one bathroom, four rooms, and we shared the little area. Jess was in one room with his wife. I was in a room with my wife. Ted P. was in one room, and I don't remember the fourth room. And then Jess became my sponsor after that. And we all met Roy in person, face to face. And I'll never forget, I brought a camera (laughs) to take his picture. (laughs) Oh, Dave, you haven't heard this part, maybe. (laughs) 
and I took a camera to take his picture, and there was no way he would let me take his picture. (laughs) And I had a shame attack like you wouldn't believe. Because, you know, I really, apparently, this was a no-no. I was a new kid on the block. And, uh, by the way, I was 44 at the time, about 45. Probably didn't even have gray hair. And um, got to meet Roy. And it was at that conference. And, by the way... Our Saturday morning meetings in Nashville had many more people than at that first international conference. It was a handful of us. Um, At that conference, Roy said something about a top plate And he said, let's go around the room about a top plate. And he explained to us the top plate in a cafeteria. You take one off and then another pops up. Take one off another. And that, he went around the room and I panicked about my, what my top plate was or is or what, you know. And I left. So at that momentous occasion, I was gone again. <laughs> now, a lot of this shows up in the, his book, this wonderful book of Recovery C- Continues. You know, it, it has so much in it that's good stuff. And I think the top plate is in that one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, during this period of time, Roy um, was always accessible. I can't tell you. He was always accessible. He was always there to talk to him. Nashville started, the guy who began us here relapsed after six months and went and found the woman, he, an older woman, he was doing obscene phone calls. This is my sponsor. And he goes and he finds her and cuts her heart out, murders her, and he goes to jail for life. Uh, my first sponsor, try to top that one, guys. <laughs> uh, and by the way, I think y'all should hear this bit, because we'll get back to Roy but about the program in general. And he went to jail, and I kept visiting him. The Nashville Roy, not the L.A. Roy. And I kept visiting him, and he decided that S.A. was evil, that the only answer was the God of his understanding. And he became one of these jailhouse evangelists. And his main thrust was to convert me. And he kept sending me letters and books, and I'd write him gently and see how he was. And one day, I call my sponsor and say, 
who knew him from AA, my AA sponsor. And I told my sponsor what was happening, and he said, don't open the letters, just toss them before you open them, and don't write them back. And I said, but how can I? He saved my life. And my sponsor, Cherry, said, no, Harvey, you got it all wrong. God saved your life and used him. You know, we are vessels, and we have to be careful of not making deities out of any of us. We're just vessels. We're just another bozo on the bus (laughs) that is past a message. Now, some are better bozos than others. Um, And so, Roy, Roy in L.A., you know, knew what was going on in Nashville, because there weren't a whole lot of groups. New York had started. Chicago had started. And New York became a terrible tension in the fellowship back then because they insisted that you could sobriety meant you could have sex with a man if you're in a committed relationship. And someone from, um, uh, oh, that Vancouver, I think, Canada, started the same issue. These were people who were there from the beginning. And the tension started and the conflict started in about 1985 that Roy had to deal with. And this became a theme for the next 20 years or more. Constant conflict this man had to deal with from morning to night. And by the way, I was one of the ones who gave him conflict. And I... Um, you eventually, maybe 10 years ago, made an amend. First of all, in letter, telling him I felt I wasn't supportive enough. And then I made my true amend. Not only was I never able to say a negative word about Roy, I wasn't ever able, one day at a time, to have a negative thought about Roy. So my remembrances are going to be geared to this unbelievable gift he gave us. Now, Nashville was helpfully started, this woman came called Jean. And Jean and I were here in Nashville. And Jean 
and I could not have been any two opposites that you could find, not only gender-wise. Politically, she was opposite than me. And program-wise, she was opposite than me. And the screaming and yelling and the battles that went on in front of other people at the meetings, you would not believe sane people could do it. But I wasn't sane. I'm better than I used to be, but not as well as I'm going to get. So here we were having these excruciating scream-outs, and Roy would become the referee. And we would call him. Gene would come to my house and we'd get on the extension and we'd call Roy to have Roy try to settle these conflicts. And she was always right. I mean, that's how it goes. My sponsor always thought my wife was right. Roy always thought Gene was right. And maybe there's a message there about me. (laughs) So my intimate, in quotes, knowledge of Roy was as a conflict resolution expert. (laughs) And it was always his using the prayers. And I, by the way, had great difficulty, especially from my religious background, having conversations switched to these prayers that he was so gifted being able to make spontaneously. He could take any subject at any time and turn it into the most magnificent prayer. I mean, it was a gift you could not believe. It was like being able to compose music on the spot. And that's how the conversations were like, of his praying for us, with us. And over the years, I had kept calling him for help on how to resolve this and that. He was always available. And who knows how many calls he was making. Uh, He had everything in his garage. And he was taking care of the fellowship. But the fellowship decided they needed to take care of themselves. And the conflict began of getting the office out of his garage. And David will have to fill in the the spots because I'm going to say it just on um, my point of what this poor guy had to go through from us. Okay. And and we were in Bozeman at a conference. And Roy got up to say, well, I'm ready to let go. He was really thinking about letting go of the garage in his, of the office in his garage. 
And he said, I'm thinking of letting go. And the moment he said it, I stood up and said, thank you, Roy, and started to applaud and ripped that office from him. We then made a committee. Nashville wasn't going to be where the office was. It was the last thought. But I was the last to know, by the way, when they decided to move it to Nashville because that wasn't the issue. We didn't know where. We thought it would go in L.A., but just not in his house because L.A. was the place they had the most people. It was the most viable group. And I'm bringing this in, too, because these guys like Roy have had had to deal with so much negative transference from people and positive transference. They started taking on aspects that they weren't. They were just human beings. And they became everyone's father to be angry at. Their brothers, their sisters, their mother, whatever it is. And so he had to deal with not only what he was getting from me, but multiply that from one city after another. And he was carrying all that. And he was totally focused on that this was going to make a difference. And the problem of gay marriage surged again. This man was inspired. He knew what he meant from no sex outside of your marriage. He knew what he meant. Because I feel he was so inspired, he did not realize that other people maybe weren't thinking of it as he was. Ultimately, over the years, this point came came up because, as I said in another conference, uh, other meeting of, uh, yesterday, it came up, I asked him about three, four years ago at a conference, Roy, you know, I, I've written about what is sex with self. How come you did not specify what sex with self is? You know, it's rather vague. And if you think about it, Marriage, in a way, had a somewhat of a vagueness because to gay guys, they were thinking marriage meant between two men. But he understood marriage meant between a man and a woman. The same thing about masturbation. He knew what he meant. But when I asked him, why was it so vague? You know, he said, Harvey, this is not a religion. We do not dot the uh, every I. So this man was inspired at such levels 
and had such respect for us. And he was the furthest from being dogmatic, although he was so focused. He was very focused on recovery. And he was put through and an excruciating period for years and years. Um, I was on a crusade, by the way. My crusade was, if you change a word in the big book, in the essay book, there is no stopping what will be changed. Others want crusades to be able to have gay marriage in the book. Others wanted something else. I wanted things to be kept just as they are and let things filter out. Roy, in his wisdom, in his being inspired, apparently knew this wouldn't work, that it had to be very clear at that point. And then the conflict developed about the book and dealing with the book. And this is all part of the history. And as you could see, whatever he thought was right on target because look at the conference today. If you just left this to a bunch of people who are on boards and on this and that, who are saying they're sober and has just walked into the meeting after 10 minutes of sexually fantasizing or something, and they're making decisions for the whole fellowship, it's tough. And he intuitively knew that he needed to keep the focus. I say this because I've recently written an article. I don't know, I'm dyslexic, so I don't know if we'll ever get into the essay. But that it is incumbent upon us, now that Roy is gone, it's incumbent upon us to emphasize his desire his desire was that this program is about freedom from lust. The book is about lust, not sexually acting out. It's about lust. <clears throat> and in this remembrance today, we want to remember what he worked so hard for. I called him some months ago before he died and spoke to him and, you know, it was, you know, talking about the fellowship and conflicts and stuff. It was the old Roy, you know, being concerned about what was happening. He's about to die and that's what he was concerned with. And the longer I'm in recovery, the more I see he had a right to be concerned. We had one man on board of trust, I think it was a board of trust, David, who ended up 
you know, being put in jail for a long time for molesting kids. You know, we're not a well group of people. We look good. Roy somehow sensed we look good, but we're not necessarily well yet. And by the way, he was the first to tell you he wasn't well. There was never a call I made to him that he did not cast out a problem he was having that day with lust. leading with his weakness. And lots of these are in the book. Recovery Continues is is really a odyssey, a journey of his difficulties in sobriety with lust. Picture-perfect woman, the uh, one where he's in the post office, the, uh, you name it. He was the first to tell you about it. Jess and he, every now and then, had some peaceful moments. <laughs> it was almost like two separate camps. And it was just a reflection of every town and city and whatever. And by the way, the way I deal with it in Nashville is I get out of Dodge. I just go to meetings. I don't go to intergroup. I think old-timers, after a while, do a group a great favor by not going to intergroup, so the group could develop as God wants it to develop, not as how Harvey sees it. But these are reflections of what happened in the country as a whole that Roy was always a recipient of. And he'd have a group of people who were supportive of him. But it was he did not get a lot of support a lot of times. He was Abraham, you know, calling out him, calling out, no, 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 I need to go there, not stay here. He was a, uh, an inspired person. And I'm, I'm going to stop here. This, we have David, who um, is uh, my sponsor, and uh, he gets uptight sometimes when I say my sponsor because I was his sponsor for many years. And so with us being now, as long as we've been, we co-sponsor each other. And one day I'll call him and say, hey, I need you as a sponsor which means he needs to listen to what I have to say and give me a a judgment on it. Another day he'll call me to say, hey, I need some advice. Uh, This only happened 
by the way, some years ago, because it's not that I'm pushing this approach, because, um, you know, my sponsors either die, like Jess, after 14 years. Um, they either die, but he first fired me before he died, by the way, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> no one is immune to being fired by a sponsor. Um, they either die or they relapse, <laughs> regretfully, in my experience. And so I needed to surrender and just say, hey, Dave, will you help me? You know. So Dave, would you come up and bring in some of your remembrance? <clears throat> I was getting worried that I wouldn't have anything to have time to say anything. So, I'm David. I'm a recovering sexaholic, and uh, you know, I was I was thinking about uh, I I had such a you know I tried to make Roy my dad, and uh, that was my stuff. And uh, you know, I can't think of a humbler um, uh, individual who who so didn't want to be called uh, our founder and uh, who, you know, that, that, that's that story about uh, taking a picture with him is a classic because uh, you know, he didn't see himself that way. I mean, he was, you know, the only figures I can, that are similar to him uh, that I can, I'm aware of are, are biblical people who, you know, who were so flawed and yet, God used them in such a powerful way. And, uh, uh, you know, my first call to Roy was because of my first wet dream. And, uh, you know, and, you know, we've, we've been talking about wet dreams for 20 some years now. And, uh, which, you know, which causes me to think that we need to write about it because our, our experience was different. You know, it was. And, uh, uh, I have my ideas about why it was different, but uh, that's that's not germane here. Um, uh, but I too called him f- for the first time in October of 1985, and I came in in August of 85, and uh, I was about two months sober. Uh, and this was my second wet, wet dream in my life because you know I had always gone to those te- sex talks and they, where they talked about you know when you become an ad- adolescent. Well, I I've been masturbating. Uh, since I was eight years old, and so I never had a wet dream, and uh, until about two months of celibacy uh, for my ex-wife, and then uh, after another six months uh, or a couple months of sobriety and not masturbating, I had my first wet dream, and I too had the same exact experience. Um, he would not tell me that I'd lost my sobriety, but after a couple of months and after a couple more phone calls, um, I reset my sobriety clock every time I had one, and. Uh, so I spent my first couple of years in, in the program uh, not acting out, not uh, masturbating uh, as a single man. And, uh, and I reset my sobriety clock every time I had a, a wet dream. And it wasn't until 1987 when it was suggested to me that perhaps uh, um, my wet dreams were a uh, sign of my recovery rather than my disease, that uh, I, uh, I, just, I just let it go. And, uh, but that, that, that conversation, like you said, he was always accessible, uh, which always amazed me. Uh, he was the guy that was on the other end of that, uh, that letter that I wrote in, uh, 
in, in June of 1985 or May of 1985 when the psychiatrist said, uh, when, I, when I told him I, I have a problem with sexual addiction, um, uh, can you help me? And he wrote, S.A., P.O. Box 300, Simi Valley, California. And he put it on a piece of paper and he handed it to me. And he said, I can't help you, but maybe these people can. And I, I had no clue what S.A. Meant, stood for. Had I known, I probably wouldn't have written the letter. Um, but I told him, you know, I, I wrote it on a legal pad and, uh, and I hand wrote it and put it in an envelope and, and a couple, probably within a week, I got an envelope, and all it had in it was that pamphlet, our pamphlet, uh, with the problem and the solution and the 20 questions. And I read it, and I cried. And because it was me, you know, I'd found the answer. Um, I, you know, I, I, that was in Rochester, New York, and uh, about four months later, um, I got transferred to Detroit, uh, where, you know, at the time... It's got a lot less people now, but it probably had two to three million people in Detroit. Um, uh, and there wasn't an SA meeting. And uh, uh, there, was, there was another S fellowship, and it was, it was in the city. Uh, they had armed guards. Well, I'm exaggerating probably, but there were guards there. There were guards in a parking lot because it was in, a, it was in, it was in Detroit. And uh, we met in the basement. And uh, that kept me sober, and but after after a number of months of really struggling with that, and and I even made an attempt to um, to start an essay meeting. Um, I called Roy. He said, "Why don't you come to the international conference?" And this was uh, back then. They were in the the winter one was in November, and uh, this was in November in St. Louis. And uh, he also had me come to a, a breakout in Chicago where he spoke. And that, that was the first place that I saw the, the, uh, the top plate exercise done. And it was a really powerful experience. And uh, so, you know, up until that time, I, I had a tape. The, the first tape I ever listened to from SA had just on it at, at one of these conferences. And I listened to it. Uh, going to my first marathon meeting in Cleveland in 1985, and it just it just blew me away. Because if if you ever heard Jeff speak, he was he was a truly gifted speaker, and uh, and so I went to my uh, first conference, international conference, in November of 1986, and I there I met Harvey, I met Gene, and I met Judson. Um, you know, to it. Two of those people, Harvey and, and Judson, are the two most important people in my recovery. You know, um, Jean left after about eight years. She was eight years sober when she left, and uh, I pray for her every day. Um, but I went to that meeting, and I, you know, I, I had gone to this place to to start an essay meeting, and I was convinced that the only day we could have a meeting was on Tuesday nights, <laughs> and. Uh, because that, that was the only time that fit in my schedule. And so Roy had me come to that conference. And I met Harvey, and I met Gene, and I met Judson. And I was sitting there, and I can't remember even who was speaking. But um, it, while this person spoke and, and talking about 
you know, whatever he was talking about, I, I heard for the first time the, the voice of God in my head, audibly, saying, the meeting, you know, what they were offering was Sunday afternoon uh, to have this meeting in Detroit. And what I heard audibly was, start the meeting on Sunday afternoon, dummy. And it, because, uh, you know, I'd, by then I'd heard Jess so many times, and, and that was a favorite word of his, dummy. And, um, and I heard it, and I, I um, went back to Detroit. I went into the, and met with them. I said, I'd like to start that. Is it, is it still available on Sunday afternoons? And they said, yeah. And, uh, you know, within three weeks, we probably were averaging <laughs> over a dozen people. That's the way God works. If you listen. Um, you know, we never, we never resolved our stuff about wet dreams. And like I said, um, I, uh, I was involved with the uh, move to central office. Yeah, and I realized, you know, what a pawn I've been to you all these years, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but I was on the central office committee. And, uh, you know, that was, that, was real, that was his baby, you know. It was his baby, and it was, it was, it was a difficult separation. Uh, but we flew him out here um, to help um, interview, you know, the first office manager, our first office manager. And uh, he was part of that whole process. And, you know, a group of us found some real estate in, in East Nashville and, and uh, where it, you know, the central office resided until just a couple of years ago. And, uh, but he was, he, you know, he was part of that process. He helped us select that person. And she lasted less than a year because of personal circumstances. And uh, that's when we, when we found Kay. And, and, uh, but it all worked out. Um, later, uh, you know, I got fired. Uh, I was on, a, I was on a, a committee that got involved in this controversy uh, that Harvey was talking about. And I got a, I got a FedEx letter say, telling, telling me that I was fired. And... Uh, from central office, and or from from him actually, and uh, it hurt my feelings, um, and uh, a number of us, you know, because we felt like we were we were doing what we needed to do, and uh, and uh, we got fired, and uh, like I said, that's that's what you know. He wasn't perfect. I wasn't perfect. Um, I you know I I'll, I'll close by saying that. Uh, you know, what an incredible gift. Um, you know, what a man, um, if, if there's anything I can learn from him, is he clearly followed God's calling, um, which is something that that uh, amazes me. And it was difficult for him. He was an introvert. He was truly an introvert. And yet when he got up in front of people, he became a totally different person than, than who he was when you talked to him one-on-one. Um, so it was truly a gift. Uh, the funniest story I remember of him, and the one that I, you know, that I fondly remember, was his willingness to share his recovery with anyone, at any time, at any place. And he ta- he told the story about uh, being on an airplane and he was coming to a conference, and and uh, this quite attractive uh, young woman sat down next to him, and and. Um, he immediately, you know, realized that she was a problem for him, and so he he got focused on 
on you know reading some some of his writing or something uh, recovery related and she you know she she was very outgoing and oh you know where are you going and uh, and uh, you know he said uh, he said you're gonna laugh and just the way he said that and you know it was so gentle and she said well why would I laugh and he said. I'm going to a conference uh, with a bunch of sex addicts, and she, you know, she let out a laugh. She said, "I told you," <laughs> and uh, and and he went on to explain, you know, about Sexaholics Anonymous, and uh, you know, I've always compared my insides with his outsides. I, you know, I've been in this fellowship, you know, going on 25 years, and uh, I've not been able to to share. My recovery, you know, is, is every everything that I have today um, is a result of this fellowship. I haven't been able to do that. So I love you, Roy. I think of you. He's in heaven today. He's sitting around a table with Jess and with Jim. And they're laughing. And saying, what a gift. Thanks. We're, uh, we're just going to dovetail. I see Sylvia's here, Dave. Uh, we're going to have an old-time panel, old-timer panel now in this room. Yeah. Uh, Sylvia? Who else is an old-timer who wants, or who was told to be on this panel? I don't know much about Simon, and if you do attend the meetings, please, please go. Think it's an asket basket for old-timers? When you do your, uh, for those who stay, and we'll wait for other people to come, uh, for those who stay, you'll come up to the microphone to ask some questions uh, un- so that it could be taped. Hey, Sylvia. Oh, gosh, yes. I go into a... Um, Sylvia and I would just gather.